might have noticed this, and you maybe have said it, or you've heard people say this, that, you know, like if you want to get like healthier, you have to eat healthier. And, and the big question is like, um, why can't healthy food taste as good as bad food, right? I mean, if they would, could actually make healthy food taste like, you know, chocolate or steak or whatever, then, you know, we, we would eat it and, and we'd have no problems. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, would be healthier where they would exercise more. They would exercise more if, didn't, if exercise didn't involve, like, sweating and, uh, you know, kind of moving around. Like, oh, I, I would love a healthy diet and a healthy lifestyle that allowed me to kind of sit on the couch and, you know, eat ice cream potato chips all day. But it's funny because we, we all know this, that, that, that the things that, that help us are sometimes the things that we don't really like that much. Now, you may be one of those exceptions where you got, you know, you, you're one of these guys and you get it. You're, you're, you're way, you know, you love to exercise. I mean, I, I, sometimes when I talk to my runners, I tell them those, I tell them like, I, I'm the kind of guy I like to go out and run and run hard and, and, and all, and some of them get it and some of them look at me like, what a weirdo. But we know exercise helps us. We know it gives us healthier bodies, sharper minds, more mobility. It improves our mood, relieves stress. There's so many ways exercise, healthier living benefits us. And yet, it's just, we just don't want to do it. And it's, it's just something about, you know, things that, that we sometimes need the most. Because we complain about all these things. We might complain like, you know, I got all these ailments. Or we might complain that I just can't think as clearly or I can't get around the way I used to. Or, you know, I always seem to be, you know, moody or depressed or something like that. Or I have so much stress. We complain about all these things and we want them out of our lives, rightfully so. But when someone says, well, here's the way, we're like, oh, you know, Stress isn't so bad, you know. Not being mobile is not so bad. And we don't do it. But a lot of times we hate the things we need the most. I think that's sometimes what happens in, in church. You know, we've been talking about healthy church. We've been talking about, you know, what a healthy church is. And, and, and if you... You know, some of you are already there. You know, you want a healthy church. You're working towards a healthy church. You're trying to be a healthy church and all of that. And other people are like, well, this is the first time I've really heard this. And you've kind of come, you've kind of taken a step this way. And you're like, you know, I hear about this healthy church thing. And I really, really, really want it. But then when you start hearing about the things we have to do, then we start thinking about the same way we think about exercise or eating healthier food. We're like, I, I want to be a healthier church, but I don't want to do the things that are going to help us be a healthier church. I want somehow that God would just, you know, do it. You know, we're looking for that, you know, the person who, you know, promises you this pill will, 
will make you healthier. If you want to lose weight, lose weight. Increase your muscles, increase your muscles. There's just a pill. If I just took this pill and I took it, you know, for over a few weeks and all of a sudden I've achieved all my health goals. And I think sometimes that's what we think about the church. We think like, oh, we, we see that and we know it's what God wants and it's, it's what Jesus, you know, came to, came to do to establish the kingdom and, and it's good and it sounds awesome and I would love to have, you know, that kind of church. But then when we start to hear like, well, these are the things we have to do. We can't have that kind of church and think that church involvement means coming on Sunday morning. You can't have a healthy church if that's all that church means. And you, you, have, to, you have to change. I can't have a healthy church if, if people aren't disciples, if they're not students of, of, of God's word and, and disciples of Christ. You can't have a healthy church. And so then we start to think like, well, you know, Healthy church is a really good idea, but you know, it takes too much work. It's too hard. Can't we just be what we are? And so we, we, we face this. You know, we face this in so many different areas of our lives. The things that, that, that we hate are the things that we need. And we're going to see that that's not just among us as believers. It's the world in general. So here's John writing this letter about 2,000 years ago. And he's trying to help this church. And this church, as we've been talking about, has, had been infiltrated by these false teachers. And again, the false teachers were, were good people. They cons probably considered themselves Christians. The other people considered themselves Christians, brothers and sisters. But they were teaching false things. And these false things were, were really important things. They weren't just little things here and there, but they were important. And eventually, this led to this separation, and they left. And so John is trying to help this church. He's trying to help this church understand what's been happening there. And he's trying to help them understand, how can we tell the true teacher from the false teacher? And so we come to chapter 3, about midway through this letter, where John says this. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So when we look at this passage, you know, a couple of things. That first word, the word for, is an important word. You know, a lot of times, you know, we see the small words and, and we, we just go right past them. When I used to teach Greek and... Um, and Hebrew, um, when I used to study Hebrew and teach Greek, I used to say, I came to this conclusion, I used to tell my, my students this, you always fear the small words. The big words, they're easy. There's a lot of evidence there. You can find them in the, 
in the dictionary, the lexicons. But the small words, they're hard. Because small words can be all kinds of things, and they usually have a huge range of meaning. And by fear, I meant pay attention to them. Don't just run over them because they're small and think they're not important. And so this particular word, for, it's this Greek word, hoti, and it just has this, it's a connection. It's saying, what I just said, okay, what I just said, what I just wrote, okay, this is, this is why. This is sometimes how. This is why you should understand that this is true, that this is important. And so it's helpful that we go back. It's one of the reasons we're trying to do this here at, at the church, where we're trying to, to not just have a sermon, but we're trying to help connect. On Wednesday nights, we have a Bible study based on the sermon. Because, because a lot of times we forget what happened last week. And so if I don't remind you and you see the word for, you don't think it's that important because you don't know what the point was uh, last week. But if you remember last week, if you remember last week, John repeated the same thought four times. He used different words, but he repeated the same thought four times. And what he said again and again, he said, if you practice sin, if you continue in sin, then you cannot be a child of God. Well, maybe he didn't say you cannot, because that means that you, know, you might go, well, why can't I? No, he's saying, he's saying it a little harsher. He's saying, you are not. Again, we don't like this. We're like, who am I to judge? I can't judge someone else's salvation. I can't judge whether they're Christians or not. I'm not telling you to judge. I'm telling you what John is saying. John says, if someone is continuing in sin, practicing in sin, and I'm not going to go over last week's sermon again. You can listen to it on the podcast if you wish. But if someone does that, they are not a child of God. In fact, they are a child of the devil. They, you cannot say that I am going to practice unrighteousness. You cannot say I am going to, to um, you know, hate my brothers and sisters. You cannot say that and actually believe that and also believe that you're a child of God. He's saying those two things, they don't go together. It's not should not, it's cannot, is not. And he's saying, and here's why. So everything that we talked about last week, with this word for, John is saying, here's why. And he's saying, it's because there's this thing that you have known from the beginning. It's not a secret. We've perhaps forgotten it, or perhaps we've misused it or misunderstood it, but it's not a secret. You've known this from the beginning. And if you really understand what has been communicated from the very, very beginning, then you will know that why I'm saying what sounds so harsh that you cannot practice sin. You cannot continue in unrighteousness. 
You cannot hate your brothers and sisters and be a child of God. Cannot. And I know this it disturbs people. I get it. You know, I, I grew up in a time when, you know, my dad would do funerals. And, um, you know, it sometimes would be for someone who, who we didn't know. They weren't in the church or whatever. And my dad would always try to, you know, find out, like, you know, was there any time where this person prayed a prayer to receive Christ? You know, and I respect what my dad was doing. My dad was not going to judge them, but he wanted to know, did they have a profession of faith? Now, can we have hope that someone had a profession of faith at some point in their life? Sure. You can have hope. It's some evidence, but it's not the evidence. The evidence is, did what the Bible says happens to us when we have faith in Jesus Christ, did it happen? Were you made new? Did you have his spirit dwelling within you? Are you not just capable, but are you loving the way that only God can love? Has all that happened? If that's happened, it's good. That profession of faith was amazing. But I grew up in a time where it was almost like some people said, okay, I'll do the profession of faith. I'll come forward if that's what it takes. I'll, I'll pray to receive Christ. And then, hey, I'm good. You know, because it's not by works. It's by faith. I'm good. Uh, if I decide I want to do some things and help out at the church, do some you know, Bible reading, whatever, I'll do it, but don't have to, I'm good. And, you know, if I stray a bit, if I go and, you know, cheat in my business life or, you know, cheat in my marriage or whatever, it's okay, because I'm good. I, I pray to prayer and I'm good. John's saying, you need to pray the prayer. You need to, to acknowledge you know, who, you know, who Christ is and what he did for you. You need to receive him as Lord and Savior. He's saying you need to do that, but he's saying that only had effect if since then you have been living in righteousness. You have been practicing righteousness. Remember, John is not saying that you've been perfect. From the very first chapter, he says, if you, if you say you're sinless, you're, calling your, you're a liar and you're calling God a liar. He's not saying sinlessness. sinlessness. He's not saying perfection. That's what the false teachers were teaching. Instead, he's saying, do you practice righteousness? That when you do get off track, does, does the righteousness that's in you does it pull you back on track? Or do you even know there is a track? And he brings up the story of Cain. And we know the story of Cain and, Cain and Abel. If we've, if we've been in 
you know, the church and even outside the church, people know this story. And he says, we shouldn't be like Cain. And again, he says, who was of the evil one. So remember this. He describes Cain the same way he described the people before who were continuing in sin. Children of the devil. Same way. And again, last week we talked about how we like to be able to deal with these scriptures by, by treating you know, a child of the devil to be really, really, really super, super evil. You know, that's what we like. Or only, you know, evil is only really, 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 really bad things. And that's not how John is using this. John isn't using this for really, really, really bad things. He's saying, if you're not a child of righteousness, if you're not a child of God, if you're not following righteousness, if you're not, you know, trying to express God's love that he's given to you, if you're not trying to do that, then you must be doing something else. And the only other thing to do, if it's not from God, it's from the devil. Again, it would be so easy if, if evil looked evil all the time. That'd be awesome. We'd go like, oh, that's evil. It'd be so easy. It'd be, it'd be easier if, you know, if the devil walked around with a name tag. It'd be so easy. But that's not how it works. The worst evils are subtle. The worst evils actually don't even have to do with your actions. They have to do with, with things that have come into the way you think and what you value and why you make choices. Those are the, the silent ones we don't see. Oh, we're watching that movie, reading that book, participating in different aspects of culture. And all these things are being shaped. Our values are being shaped. And if we're not grounded in God's word, if we're not grounded in, 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 in just knowing what it means to, to be like Christ and to be righteous, it's easy. It's easy to get pulled away. We, we like to make evil extreme. But it's funny, because we like to make evil extreme, but we don't like to make good extreme. Good, we have like a huge definition of good. Hey, you know, I uh, walked by Kahala Mall, came out of Macy's, you know, just spent $500 but I had a couple quarters, I threw it in that red kettle thing. So that's good, right? Well, it is good. But it's funny, our definition of good is, is, is wide, it's broad. You know, that homeless person, you know, other people were like staring at him, but me, you know what I did? I smiled. It's good. And again, is that good? Yeah, it's good. But our, defini our definition of good is so big, 
and our definition of evil is so extreme, what is all this stuff in between? In John's mind, there's no stuff in between. It's either good or it's evil. It's either light or it's dark. It's either love or it's hate. And so when he looks at Cain, and he looks at the story of Cain, he's bringing up a story that would have been very familiar to his Jewish, um, his Jewish readers. But it would also have been familiar at this point in the church's history, because the church has been around for about, uh, about 40, 50 years, and their main scripture has been the Hebrew scripture. So they know the story of Cain. They've heard it. In fact, we find it referenced in other New Testament writings. So why is the story of Cain so important? Why does he bring up Cain? Of all the people he could have brought up, why does he bring up Cain? It's not because he was a murderer, although that's kind of connected. But the first thing is because they were brothers. He's not talking about um, people who are enemies of Christianity or enemies of the church and, and coming in and wanting to. He's talking about people that, that we consider brothers and sisters. He's talking about what seems like they are part of us. The second thing is, Cain was, was resentful. And he was resentful largely with God and not with Abel. He was more upset. I think the story would have turned out differently if God had accepted Abel and Cain's sacrifice. You guys know the story, right? They both present a sacrifice, and God accepts Abel's. But he doesn't accept Cain's. And if you just read the story on face value, it's like, oh, why not? Why was God so picky? Why was he being, you know, you know why, why didn't he just say, hey, Cain, you did the best you could. It's not great, but you know what? I'm going to take it anyways because I'm a God of grace and love. Why didn't he do that? It'd be such a better story. You know, just try your best. Well, it tells us in Hebrews why. And it tells us here. It's because what Abel did was righteous. Remember what we talked about righteous. Righteous was right action, right? With the right purpose, and the right heart. That's righteous. When Abel offers his sacrifice, all those things are there. When Cain offers it, it becomes evident that he certainly doesn't have the right heart. And we're not sure he has the right purpose. He did the right action. He made an offering to God. He made a sacrifice to God. He did the right action. But the other two pieces weren't there. And so he resents Abel's righteousness. Keep that in mind. Because when we, when we go through these different points here real quickly, we're going to come back to that. He resents Abel's righteousness. And there's no indication that, that Abel was, was like, you know, ta taunting Cain, like, oh, you know, look what God did with mine. And I guess yours wasn't good enough. 
Why won't you try again? There's no indication that Abel does anything. He doesn't humble brag. He doesn't do any of that. But Cain has an issue with his brother's righteousness. Well, three points that we see from this text. And tells us both what we should be doing and really who we should be. And it's not something that we have to necessarily generate. It should already be there. And it's just simply this, that disciples love one another. That's that commandment. That's that thing that's been from the very beginning. Love one another. The Greek word is agapomen alelus, right? It's right there on the screen. You guys knew that, right? Uh, but it's agapomen alelus. The first word sounds like agape because it's, it is that word. It's the verb form of that word. And it has this idea of let us love. Let us love. And alelus is the word for each other, one another. So let us love one another. We're not going to be like Cain. We're going to love one another. We're going to love in the opposite way Cain does. We don't. We don't hate someone's righteousness. We love the person and we love the righteousness in them. And you might go, well, that's, that's obvious. Of course we do that. Eh, not so obvious. Not so obvious. You ever have that, that kid in class, when you were in class, and you were like, oh, you know, you and maybe a couple of your friends are like, oh, man, this teacher's impossible. There's no way you can you know, learning, there's no, too much work, you know, the exams are too difficult. And then there's that one person who gets an A. And you go, huh, right? And, and, and you, you come up with an explanation. You know why they get an A? Because they have no social life. If they had a social life like me, they were more well-rounded like me, then they wouldn't get an A. But all of us normal human beings that live a normal life, it's impossible, right? We're resenting someone else's success. We're, we're, we're looking at someone who actually did the thing that we thought was impossible, and we're resenting them. Why? Because they took away our excuse. The Bible says, iron sharpens iron, and people love to say that, but here's the truth. Iron doesn't always like to be sharpened. That's the truth. Part of being a healthy church, uh, disciples, is that we sharpen one another, which means sometimes we're going to have to say things that we don't want to hear right now. Maybe we think we're not ready to hear. 
Or maybe even if we hear them, we can't really process them. We resent. We don't love righteousness in other people all the time. We don't love the righteousness in someone else who, when we come up and say, ah, you, you know about, you know about what, what, what I saw Tonto do? And, you're, and the righteousness in the other person says, hey, you know what? Um, why don't we pray for them? And then after we pray for them, if, if it's still bothering, let's go talk to them. You know how I know we, we don't like that righteousness? Because I know I'm that way sometimes. And I know that whenever I've done that consistently in any group I've been in, people stop complaining to me about other people. Because they're not complaining to me because they want to make the situation better. They're complaining to complain. And now they start to resent you because you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to do the healthy thing. You're trying to bring reconciliation. You're trying to be constructive and move things forward. You're trying to help everybody grow and they resent you because you're not allowing them to complain. Oh, maybe this agapomen alilus is a little harder than I thought. Yeah. Maybe I don't love the righteousness in other people. The other reason we don't love the righteousness in other people is it makes us feel good to know that there are people lower on the totem pole than us. You know, I think a lot of, you know, growing up in Hawaii, and especially growing up in Eva Beach, not new Eva Beach, but real Eva Beach, you know, growing up out there, I realized that we had a God, and our God was, was mediocrity. We loved mediocrity. We didn't have to be the best. We had no drive to be the best. We just didn't want to be the worst. So as long as we kind of hung out in the middle, we're okay. That's good. We're not going to push to be anything more. And I realized as I kind of came out of Eva Beach, I thought that was only Eva Beach. And I do think we in Eva Beach do medio mediocrity better than anyone else, at least back when I was growing up there. But then I started to know that that's kind of how a lot of people in Hawaii feel. Hey, don't got to be the best, as long as I'm not the worst. And if that happens in our churches, it's a problem. Because we should desire to be the best that we can be. We should desire to be the best that, that Jesus wants to make us to be. And we should never just say, hey, it's long as I'm not the worst. But a lot of times we're, we're plagued by that. And you have to ask the question, if someone's righteousness angers you, if someone's righteousness bothers you, what John is saying is, how can you be born of God? Because if you're born of God, you would want everybody to be righteous. You would want everybody to be doing the right things for the right purpose with the right heart. 
You would love it when someone's doing it. You would be inspired in your own life. If you feel like you're more spiritually mature, you might remember how it was when you were walking through those same trials. If someone's ahead of you, you, you might look at them and say, okay, God, you know, help me. I know where I'm going. But instead, what happens in a lot of groups, not just churches, but what happens in a lot of groups is that if there's not a constant push upward, that we tend to drift towards the lowest common denominator. And that's because it's easier to pull down than to build up. And it hurts. It hurts churches when they're trying to be healthy, when we're dominated by resentment, discouragement, even hindrance. You know, if, if someone is, you know, sometimes, you know, I've kind of, like I've told you before, I've accepted that we're not the most expressive church. But what if someone comes to our worship service and is more expressive? You good with that? You good with that? Amen. <laughs> what if someone is someone who is more willing to talk about what's going on in their lives when you're more reserved? Are you okay with that? Or are you going to sit in judgment? Or are you going to do the typical things like, you know, they only do that to get attention. You know what? Even if they only did it to get attention, you know what you should say is, why do they need to get attention and how can I help them? What is it about their lives that, that craves attention and, and how, can I, how can I be a help in their lives? But we hinder growth. We hinder people trying to live their lives. Think about if we took the same attitudes we sometimes have in church to our homes. Like, you know, like you, you, you bring your kid home, right? You bring your kid home from the, from the um, you know, from the hospital and, um, you know, some of you, not from the hospital, you yeah, had your kids in the kitchen. But the rest, you know, you went to the hospital, you bring them home, like after, you know, you know a few months or so, kid, tries to start to crawl, and you're like, hey, just stop already. Look, if you're not going to just go to walking, just stop. Or if they start to walk and they're kind of, hey, no, 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 you cannot walk. Here, just let me carry you. Just going to keep carrying you. No, you, you, you let the kid try. You let the kid fall down. And then you're there. When they fall down, you know, you give them a hug, you kiss their boo-boo, and then you let them try again. But I sometimes think when we have baby Christians in our church and people who come into our church, we don't want to let them grow. We don't want to let them learn to walk. They got to be just like us, or they need to go somewhere else. And again, I'm not just talking about our church. I think our church does a really good job at a lot of things. But I'm talking about churches in general. That if something is different, 
Our objective is to make it the same. Yes, there's certain things that the Bible tells us that we should not have in our churches. But there's a lot of things that are okay. You know, I really believe God is bringing our church to this, to this place. He's bringing us to this, to this, this, this crossroads, this, this, this edge, or whatever you want to say it, that, that, that the next step's not going to be a step. It's going to be a leap. And there's going to be faith involved. But there's going to be some, some amazing things that can happen to help us go from being a church that's kind of healthy, the church that's, that's really healthy. I really believe that. And so what we have to ask is, okay, how do I feel about that? Because it means I might need to do things that I don't like to do. It means I might have to eat food, to extend the metaphor, that I don't want to eat. The church can't be healthier unless all the people in the church decide to be healthier, which means we all have to change. But if we're too busy, too afraid of protecting what we have or being threatened by change, this is it. And again, I go back to the kid, the kid example because it's a good one. You know, um, we were blessed with not having climbers as children, okay? If you have climbers, you know, God bless you. Nothing is safe in your house, right? And, and I remember, like, watching Jurassic Park when they're in that kitchen scene and the, and the dinosaurs are are learning to open door handles. Because I had the same feeling when my daughters started to learn to open door handles, right? Because you go, oh no, I can't even just close the door anymore. Nothing's safe. But you know what? I'm glad my daughters learned to use door handles. I'm glad that we kept having to move stuff higher and higher and higher as they were able to stand up. I'm glad that it was in some ways an inconvenience to Cheryl and I because we knew not to go under the kitchen sink and drink whatever had a nice colorful label on it. And so we had to put those insane child locks, you know, that you know, never worked right. I'm glad. Yes, it was an inconvenience, but it was a great inconvenience because it meant my daughters were growing. Can we do that? Are we ready for that? The other point that's here is right there in the middle, and, and it doesn't seem to belong in a lot of ways. It's just kind of just there, and I, but I think it's important that a world of hate will hate those who love. If you really love the way God says that you can love, that he empowers you to love, the world will hate it. And the world will hate it the same reason sometimes in the church we resent other people's righteousness. Because it confronts them with their own unrighteousness. That's why the world is so busy trying to label Christians. 
Oh, you're judgmental, you're closed-minded, you're all of this. Because as long as they can say that, if you, if you give them a gospel message, they can tune you out. And sadly, a lot of Christians have adopted that same view. If we love the way that God can love, the way that only God can love, we show them another way. We show them that we can still hold on to how God wants us to live. We show them that you can still live with holiness, but at the same time have, have love and, and grace. There's a lot of people in this world who have adopted this attitude, and you just have to know it, that if you disagree with them, that means you don't love them. I don't know where this idea came from, but it is so strong in our world today. If you disagree with me, you don't love me. If you love me, you agree with me. What Christians need to show again and again is that, yes, we might disagree with you. We might disagree with your choices that you've made. We might disagree with what you say is right and what is wrong and what you value. But here, make no mistake, we love you. We love you. And we're not just saying it. We're going to live it. We're going to be out there even when you're hating us. Even when, when you are trying to, to tear down what we're doing, we're still going to love you. Get it. A world of hate will hate those who love. Understand it. But that doesn't give us an excuse to hate. We still have to do what is inside of us that's compelled, compelling us to, to love, to love our enemies, to love the stranger, to love the helpless. And again, we don't love on the world's terms. We don't love by saying, oh, yeah, 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 you, you, we agree with you. We agree with you, and that's how I'm going to show you love, because I'm going to show how tolerant I am because I agree with you. No. It's not love. It's not love. It's not God's love. That's something else that the world thinks is love. But understand, when the world was presented with the perfect lover, Jesus Christ, he was killed. Understand that. If we're going to be representatives of Jesus Christ in a world that hated Jesus, it's going to hate you too. In fact, you should be more concerned if the world loves you a lot. You might wonder about that. Because, see, Christians' whole objective seems to be to try to get along instead of just loving being holy, love, and let the world react how the world will react. We don't even believe our own, our own salvation. And finally, he says this, our love for fellow Christians. That's what he's talking about specifically here. And again, we told you why. It's because this is like, this is like primary school, elementary school. 
if you can't get it right with other people who are supposedly Christians, how do you expect to get it right outside the church? He's not saying we limit it to just the church, but he says our love for fellow Christians is proof that we have new life in Christ. He says we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. If you like to highlight things, you should highlight that. Because we love the brothers. We know, we know. It's not because we pray to prayer. It's not because we can check off all the doctrinal lists and say, this is right, this is right, this is right, this is right. It's not because we do, you know, sacrificial things. It's because we love the brothers. It is evident inside of our own lives because we love one another. It's why on Lord's Supper communion, I have you guys stand up and look at each other. Because the evidence is when you look around this room and say, I love everybody in this room. Or I don't. I don't even know who they are. It's evidence. It's proof. And it's not from me. I would make it easier. I would say the evidence is that you love at least one person really well. Because, you know, I'm pretty sure I might be able to do that. My wife might disagree. But, but I'm pretty sure I might be able to do that. Or a handful. But he says, love one another. And remember, when he says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He's not engaging in hyperbole. He's, he's echoing what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, where he says, hatred, you know, hatred in your heart, just like murder. And in John's mind, hatred is the absence of love. So anything less than love is hatred in John's mind. You see, we're all good with this if, if we say like, oh, murderers not accepted into heaven, okay. Got that. Even if you were to say, people who really, really, really hate, like, you know, want someone else's demise, and then we're like, okay, I got that. But when we understand John is defining hatred as the absence of love, then we want to back off and say, ooh, can we interpret this some other way, please? Because this is something I know I do. It's not more, it's, it's not just simply tolerating. It's not just simply getting along. It's not just simply not doing harm to someone. Love is more than that. And see, John is making secure here why the church, a healthy church, is so important. And why it's not optional. It's not something more serious Christians do. It's proof. When we love one another, it's proof to us that Christ did what Christ said he would do in our lives when we call upon him as Lord. And it's a testimony to the world of what God's love can do when it gets a hold of people who have no earthly business being together. And it makes them united in a way stronger stronger than any other bond. 
last thought here is he says, no murderer has eternal life. And when we think about eternal life, we usually think about the duration. But notice he says, eternal life dwelling in him, abiding in him, living in him. He's not talking about length of existence. He has more in mind what he's going to say later on. And he says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is uh, know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. It is not simply the duration of existence. It is the presence of Christ in our lives. And he's making this point because he's trying to make this point what he's been doing for about two chapters now, again and again and again. And, you know, I had a clever way of doing it, but I've kind of run out of time, so I'm going to do it quickly. And then if you want to hear it longer, you know, we'll chat over coffee. But he's saying, I cannot fathom how you could have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Eternal One, the Perfect One in your life and right next to it have hatred. And right next to it have resentment. And right next to, to, to this eternal life, having unrighteousness. I can't fathom that. That's what John is saying. How can you have Jesus Christ in your life and welcome all these other things? That's the question. Doesn't mean they're not there, but it means we should try to get rid of them. It means it's like when you go to your refrigerator and you see the thing that's past the expiration date by about six years. <laughs> you should want to get rid of that as soon as possible. Once you find it, get rid of it. That's John's point. Once you see that resentment, once you see that unrighteousness, once you see that jealousy, once you see whatever that is in your life, you should say, that has no place in a life where Jesus is present. Get it out. And we get it out. I love this. I love John. He doesn't beat around the bush. It's very straightforward. I don't love it in some ways because I don't get anywhere to hide. I want to hide. I want to say like, oh, John, but what about this and what about that? John doesn't let us hide. So let's, let's think on his word. Let's reread, review, and see what he's saying. Let's not try to explain it away. And let's say, God, we want your love to abide in us. We want Jesus Christ to abide in us. And there's no place for these other things.